If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. a big marker now that doesn't mean that everybody who doesn't have a long-term relationship has you know personality disorder but like you were saying on that rubric it's something that does look very significant yeah so going back to the guys get this the moms or the women that they were in relationships with were invariably either one or two years younger than them was meeker and considered to be less forceful or passive uh one of the women had severe learning difficulties and was being investigated and treated by her husband. So not oh. only is he taking care of the child, but now he's taken on sort of like some of the women do, this medical expertise right. that he's going to give her treatment. And in five cases in, within this study, the mother's caring capabilities for the child were so remarkable that DCFS or Department of Child and Services, Child and Family Services had been called in by other people. So clearly... They were picking partners that probably had some significant developmental issues or challenges mm-hmm. in parenting. So it shows uh, that chronologically there's a pattern of either the father or the child displaying false illnesses when they look at it and just start plotting things on a calendar. But in the past, men with Munchausen syndrome have been considered more likely a danger to themselves, but not to others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Maybe that goes along with male impulsivity and the more the likelihood to be more violent. Like when we look at people who attempt suicide, men generally tend more lethal, tend to use more lethal means than women. Exactly. Right. There may be an overlay there. The vast majority of the guys in this study showed significant levels of grandiosity and expansiveness in their natures. And they made, like Baron Munchausen, the, the actual person that this is named after, they made really outlandish claims about their accomplishments and their history. One of them said that he was a sailing champion from the south of England, and which, of course, with a, easily found out with a Google search that the person would not have that or would have that, right? He's like, but I've been employed my whole adult life, unemployed my whole adult life. So, yes, uh, those, those sailing lessons are so inexpensive. Yes. <laughs> One of them said that he was fighting alongside Prince Andrew in the Falklands War, and he would show photographs of the fleet army passing out parade, claiming to identify himself in a picture. Now, that's probably not working out too well today, (laughs) (laughs) given Prince Andrew's current challenges. Right. Um, One of them said that he was a writer of two novels, one of which had been adapted for film. That was not true at all. One of them said that he was writing a screenplay for a film and he was always on the phone speaking to Steven Spielberg, allegedly. He even sure. went to Yes, he even went to the extent that he convinced his wife to the extent that she agreed to dress up in her Sunday finest clothes to accompany him to the studio to meet the cast of the movie. But then, of course, the chauffeur had driven the Rolls Royce into a ditch and it was broken down and they would not be able to go. All dressed up and nowhere to go. Right. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's almost like that sort of pathological lying almost seems like that there could be some other things at play on a mood disorder spectrum, like even bipolar, that hypomania into mania where there's grandiosity and expansiveness and just jumping from point to point and creating a reality as you, as you walk along. 
And of course, if you have a if you have a passive partner, they're not going to challenge you. Sure. They're well, even... but it, pathological lying is also a huge trait of psychopathy. So, you know, I think there's an overlap of psychopathy here too. My Venn diagram is getting bigger by the minute. <laughs> I I think you're onto something. I really think you're on something. I think that that would be the next level of research is to see if anybody is looking at this in regards to the dark triad. That would be really fascinating. Even some of the guys went on to engage in further bizarre behaviors besides sort of creating these alternate realities for their past histories. Um, one would uh, cut off water and gas to his own house. So he would create sort of almost like this, well, the city is doing this to me. The city is pursuing me or the city is making this more difficult as I try and care for my child. Um, one had deliberately self-harmed. He had cut himself with a razor um, in order to litigate and take a claim against a safety razor company. Um, one took a piece of candy and inserted, you know, some kind of foreign object in it so that he was able to, you know, injure himself within his mouth and then put a suit against the candy company and won. Interesting. So there are these like total malingering behaviors on top of the Munchausen's. On top of con men type stuff. I mean, this is like penny any con stuff as well. Yeah. Missing money, valuables from friends or family's houses. There was one guy, and this is probably the most bizarre. He bandaged himself from head to foot and claimed to have 90% burns all over his body. So he's taking (laughs) his child into the hospital and he's completely wrapped up like a mummy. So that's the one that I think like... There's, there's some that are more veering towards dark triad sociopathy, psychopathy, and then there's some that are more into sort of that cluster area of schizoid and schizotypal and odd eccentric behaviors. Right. They're really Definitely. just a different way of thinking. So they would make excuses about wounds. The things that would happen to themselves, they would say that they got wounded from fighting off burglars or I got wounded because I was coming to the hospital and I saw this young woman getting raped on the street and I had to get out and defend her and try and rescue her. One, you know, shaved off all of his hair and his eyebrows and uh, was saying at the same time that his child was sick, that he was uh, suffering from testicular cancer and then he was losing all of his hair due to chemo. And then he would use that to sort of muck up the whole schedule of his medical appointments and make it harder for his child to get the appointments that they supposedly needed. Ooh, so it's a tactic to, I don't know if it's the disruption of it all, but also to kind of throw off medical teams, maybe for the child of like, oh, we can't go today. Maybe they weren't presenting as sick that day because I have my leukemia treatment. So one of the things that came in one of these examples of the male perpetrators who was also a self-harmer, He escalated his symptoms and self-harm to a point where he had mutilated his legs so badly that it led to amputation. And like, but he was ready for the surgery, like coming into the hospital and had shaved and prepped his own leg. And the medical staff described their feelings as being physically sick because he was so weird and freakishly calm and like uh, ready for his surgery. Yeah, he's ready for his leg to be cut off. Uh, yeah. Uh, One of the uh, nurses was quoted as saying, I felt like he was showing off. Uh, yeah. yeah. So now when we started off, remember we were talking about all those behaviors and the way that the women were interacting with hospital staff and how they got along with everybody. And it was just only once in a while when they would like get angry or make demands that their child's needs were not being met. It was really for the most part, they were able to maintain positive relationships. That's not what the guys do. <laughs> no? <laughs> no. Surprise, surprise. The hospital staff overall hated dealing with the male perpetrators of Munchausen. The, they're described unilaterally as over-demanding, overbearing, unreasonable, and even those that initially seemed to have sort of reasonable behaviors were found to lose their temper very easily and become irritated with staff at the drop of a hat. So basically they're overacting. They need to like tone it down to a realistic right. marker. <laughs> yeah, they need to tone it down to be realistic. But what's interesting is that in, in despite the bizarre behaviors, despite the irritability and the overbearingness, the hospital staff still did not see them as villains. 
mm-hmm. but saw them as like just overwhelmed, angry males that were at their wits end. Just difficult parents to be dealing with. Which, of course, goes back to what we're talking about is like, we would like to create a rubric where you can just check off all these boxes. But this is a, a particularly specialized and extraordinary situation where a child is ill. So are they going to be able to like go, are they, are all these factors adding up in the way that they should? I think it's just, if we were in that position, it would be very difficult. I think so too. I mean, really whoever the psych staff is in these medical facilities, I would hope they're, they have a little bit more specialty training in this area to be called in and maybe even just look it over once, but you know, you know, there's those checklists for physical child abuse that medical staff is hyper vigilant about and aware about. Just wondering where this fits in. Yeah, I think one of the things that they noted in the research is they made a really great statement about hospital staff are trained to work with unusual people. Right. You know, they're trained to cope with and help unusual people and to discern between people that are coming in for pain medications, which is a huge a huge yeah. phenomenon in this country of people like injuring themselves to go into ERs in order to get opioid medications. So there's a lot that we're asking of our medical professionals. And I think that this one is a, a, li- a bit more murky than some other situations that they have to sure. deal with. The real ability to drill down into these male perpetrators is when they can do a background and look at the individual's health you know, get some collateral information from family, personal employment records, or talking to acquaintances. You know, if you can spread the circle out a little bit, you're going to get a better view of it, which is something that the real expert in doing this kind of crime is able to do is like, they don't have anybody like that because they move so much. So if you move and you only have the records like here, here's these three files of my daughter's illness from Kern County or Oakland or whatever. And here I am, 500 miles away, how is the medical staff going to actually be able to to discern that? One of the things that they did find, though, is that there are cases where women litigate against the supposed malpractice. Men are way more likely to make formal complaints and seek legal action for the perceived failure of the healthcare system, even though they could easily be caught. But then that makes you think, well, are they more motivated by money then? Which is totally possible. Or ego. You know, again, like taking this so far, just, I don't know. That's interesting. I'm not sure. I wonder also if there would be a more of a chance for the men engaging in this type of activity crime, if they are more likely to be fitting into that dark triad than the women are. I mean, that would be a great way to look at it if there was enough data. So two-thirds of the patients with Munchausen syndrome are male, but the more common non-Munchausen forms of uh, factitious disorders, females outnumber the males three to one. Once again, in men and women where there is commonality is that their own symptoms and their own illnesses go into remission when the child is sick. When Mm -hmm. the child is either well or dead, their symptoms come back, which is just freaky to think that you go that far to harm your child, and then it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, a minority of the female perpetrators are perceived by staff to be aggressive and overbearing and difficult to deal with, but these descriptions were applied to all of the male perpetrators. So here's Super the other thing. Yeah, it is. And then when we go into that, what I wanted to get to at the beginning, or I wanted to make sure we put a pin in, is that the male perps are more likely to confess when they're confronted with the charges the perpetrators, uh, male perpetrators of Munchausen syndrome by proxy have been more likely to incur criminal prosecution than the female perpetrators. So when they get caught, they're more likely to have criminal charges and they're more likely to be put all the way through the legal system as opposed to many judges really being very lax with female perpetrators. Of course, with all crime. But the thing right. about this one is that there are so many more female perpetrators of this particular crime. Right. That's true. So that's that's a that's a wonky um, ratio that has to be figured out. The sentences for male perpetrators have been more punitive than for women, definitely. And yeah. in this uh, United Kingdom study, 
within the criminal courts there in relation to a woman found guilty guilty of smothering her child, uh, the judge tended to take a position of it was a cry for help. Oh my lord! Which you know you would never if a if a a, a, a man smothers his child, you would never hear uh, someone saying that it was a cry for help. Never, never. never. So, and until recently, it was very common for charges to women to be brought down to the level of manslaughter or what we call grievous bodily harm, charges which don't lead to a mandatory life sentences. But several of the men who incurred lengthy prison sentences for these charges, and then there was one who was confined to a maximum security hospital for life. There you go. It's such a double standard all through the system. So... Yeah, I mean, uh, some weird things, too, in men and women is that there was a history of arson in the homes, so setting fires that might cause harm to themselves or to their kids, um, or set up a situation where they could heroically rescue their kids. Many cases of household pets being poisoned, generally always poisoned. There was one case with a male perpetrator where they found that their child was being poisoned with the same poison they had that the veterinarian had found in the dog. So you think they're doing a dry run with the dog to see how much it would take? Uh, yeah, sounds like it. So I think that the charges vary across. I wasn't able to get like a lot of data on that, but it can be really difficult because the prosecution is trying to cover something that there may not be legal standing for in that area. I mean, generally, you're going to get an over, I mean, generally, you're going to get harm to a child, grievously, you know, bodily danger, armed with a deadly weapon, Mm -hmm. neglect, abuse of a child. But those can vary from state to state. And the actions just may not be, be looked at in the same way with a more sort of educated legal system. Well, and that, that's, the problematic issues that we see when it starts to enter court because you start to introduce this idea of a mental health disorder and the criminal behavior. So is it mitigating? Is it not? Is it just a straight up crime? You know, for anyone that commits child abuse, you have to think there's something wrong with them, right? I think we would say that they are abnormal in some way to be able to do that. And going back to our conversation at the beginning of this episode, and that, that is really hard. And so Dr. Michael Boots that I was talking about the top says that this is so hard and difficult once you get into court, because we're talking about a set of diagnostic symptoms that has remained elusive, unclear, and the point of considerable continued debate even in the professional literature and national policies for like the last 30 years. So the courts are making incredibly critical decisions based on these diagnoses that even, again, a seasoned forensic psychologist may not have a true grasp of, especially the minutia when you start looking into these. Um, I, I think with the Gypsy Rose case, this was made even more complicated because it ends up where the victim then becomes a perpetrator in a sense. But the court really ends up doing the right thing in the end with carefully considering the circumstances and really trying to understand Munchausen syndrome by proxy and probably coming up with a very reasonable sentence for her to plead to. So let's take a look at this case. Um, And again, our topic today is the Munchausen syndrome. So we really are focusing more on Dee Dee Blanchard, the mother, rather than Gypsy's crime of murder so much. A little bit about Dee Dee Blanchard and her background with a lot of what you were talking about is going to all make sense here. But her father said that he really spoiled her, um, that he basically gave her whatever she wanted. And as she grew up, she expected, she just had that sort of personality that things would always go her way. And when they didn't, she would act out in a lot of different ways. And one of those would be that she would just steal from family members. So she had this very specific way of sort of 
taking what she wanted when she wanted it, whether it be from family members or she would uh, write bad checks. So she had a history of sort of low-level fraud, friends, stealing items. Um, there is this, this theft element to her. She also worked as a nurse's aide at one point, very briefly, but this gave her the familiarity with medical terminology to know at least on some level what she was talking about. And her family, and it, this is all documented in the documentary Mommy Dead and Dearest by uh, that's on HBO, but her family says that when she was in the position of a caregiver of her own mother, they really truly suspect that she starved her mother to death and that... That's how she died. Okay, I didn't know we, that at all. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Her that's like angel of death. That's like the nurse angel of death stuff, right? It sure is. Her stepmother, who is, thank goodness, alive, talks about how Dee Dee poisoned her. She put weed killer in her food, and she was bedridden for nine months, sick because of this, and eventually recovered. But here we have another mother figure in her life that she's causing harm to. I could not find information about uh, Munchausen syndrome to the self, but because most people thought because of her petty crimes, financial crimes, that she was changing location a lot. She changed her name a lot. And she was married very young to Gypsy's biological father. I think he was only 17 when they got married. I mean, they were kids when they got pregnant with Gypsy, but eventually she moves away with Gypsy. And then at about the point where Gypsy's three, uh, I'm sorry, three months old, this is when Dee Dee starts, quote unquote, diagnosing her with a variety of illnesses, which end up being a whole laundry list of things that include sleep apnea, epilepsy, cancers, muscular dystrophy, ear and eye problems, as well as leading the world and Gypsy to some point to believe that she was a paraplegic, that she could not walk. So for much of her childhood, she was in a wheelchair and her mother would tell her, you know, you can walk. You know, she would use the term paraplegic to some people, but she would tell Gypsy, you, know, you can walk, but you're so sick, you'll make yourself more sick if you walk. So really thinking that she's bound to this wheelchair. she It's really astounding when you look at the, the ways in which she was able to convince doctors to give her the cocktail of medications for Gypsy. She underwent eye surgeries, ear surgeries, surgeries on glands in her, her throat. She had the feeding tube. So again... What you were talking about of that being one of the most common and fed her, made her meals, um, injected her with the meals. But in 2007, she was taken to a pediatric neurologist, Dr. Bernardo Flasterstein, and he was highly suspicious because of a number of things. He's, he was like, okay, I was told she had muscular dystrophy. She didn't walk. She had muscle tone to her legs. Right. Like something super easy to observe. Can we just um, like, I, I have to, I'm sorry. I have to, you said something yeah. that, that punched me because I, I did not know this part of it was the multiple like eye surgeries and gland surgeries. surgeries. And I would, I would want to read like the reports of doctors, like how could they justify that? Like without testing, without te without testing. I mean, how just the multiple surgeries, and I get that maybe. Well, no, I don't get it. It doesn't matter what the the parent is pushing for. It you know those are unnecessary surgeries and sure shouldn't be done. Oh God! Unless so she gross. was inducing something that was causing the damage. God, you know, it. I mean, there's okay. that too. That's possible. But I, I think there's both of these things going on. Um, a lot of the medications that she was giving Gypsy then were inducing these symptoms too. And I don't know which specific ones or if it had to do with any of those that had surgeries, but you know they were having those effects. Um, but this pediatric neurologist starts to catch on to it, runs a bunch of tests, 
and ends up putting in his report, I strongly suspect Munchausen by proxy, he used those words, and at the top in bold, underlined in his report, mother is not a good historian, which is something as a psychologist and psychiatrist, we put in our reports, whether or not the person we're getting the information from, because so much is based on self-report. And that's the downside to to all of this as well. Uh, But that too slips through the cracks. And what Dee Dee Blanchard would do is she would request all of the medical records. And so I'm sure she ended up getting a copy of this and then they were gone. They never saw him again. And he said, he, he kind of owns up to it and says, you know, I didn't call DCFS, but they had every single doctor duped. Like, I think it's kind of a way for him to, you know, take this off of his shoulders or whatever, but he's like, nobody would believe me. I don't think that's for him to decide. I think a report should be made, but. Well, you know, it, it makes me think of the story of Dr. Death, David Dunch, who got away with, with harming and killing all of these patients of his. And it took, you know, just the chance interaction between two doctors that knew he was full of shit. True. Yeah. They happened to be scrubbing up for surgery next to each other and having a conversation. If they had never met, how many more people would he have damaged? There just needs to be know. a better system in place for reporting this. Yeah. Yeah. It really does. It's hard. I mean, that brings up a whole lot of other issues, but there's just too many victims of some really serious medical issues and or death, the case of Dr. Death. So some of the tactics that Dee Dee used as part of one, keeping the Munchausen syndrome by proxy going, as well as keeping the secret going, would be moving around a lot. She would accept charity and money and housing. I mean, they moved into a home that was built for them by Habitat for Humanity. Now, I guess that's where we can say, like, is this also malingering? Now, I don't think, it's not as if they were living outside their means and she was going out and buying, you know, expensive things for herself. It was a way to keep up this entire act. So when I look at it, I think that's the context I'm sort of looking in there. Like what is, if this is her full-time job and very hard air quotes, take care of her daughter because of this mental illness that she suffers from, they're either, they're going to be homeless or she's going to have to start taking handouts from somewhere. Right. But it's not like she's buying a Mercedes yeah. or, Yeah. Right. Although they, right. they do, I mean, they get a lot of swag. They get free trips to amusement parks and sure, sure. events and all sorts of things. Yeah, but Dee Dee really kept her in this constant state of childhood. You know, you look at it from the outside and you're like, oh, that's really sweet. You know, her being a late teenager, still super into Disney. Oh, well, I mean, we're still super right. into You and Disney. I are still into <laughs> Disney, so there you go. Um, you know, dressing up and kind of the cosplay and all of that. But it really was to keep one, I think, gypsy thinking that she was more childlike than she was. And for the rest of the world to also endorse that and keep that going. Because as long as she's young enough, as long as she needs her enough, then she's further restricted and isolated. They were also Hurricane Katrina survivors. So they lived in Louisiana and well, one shouldn't you be using air quotes when you say that? Because well, all the records were destroyed, right? Well, they were they they were survivors of Hurricane Katrina. She one of her tactics was she would say that the medical records were destroyed okay. during the floods. They were able to go back and actually find some of the records. I don't know if it was with family or not. I don't know, you know, I don't think they were in the eye of the hurricane okay. <laughs> necessarily, but it was part of the narrative that went along with keeping this going is doctors would ask, oh, well, when was that surgery? Oh, let me look for the record. Oh, you know, that one was destroyed. So she also really kept Gypsy's biological father cut off. He was still back in Louisiana. He would send money for child support, but he would also call And, you know, especially there's this one kind of famous moment that has been documented and depicted in the fictionalized version of it, the act. 
he calls on her 18th birthday to wish her happy birthday because it's a really special one, obviously. And it's his child. And it's her birthday. And when Dee Dee picks up the phone, she says, oh, well, you know, she doesn't think she's 18. She, st- she thinks she's still 15. And, you know, I don't want to put that pressure on her that she's an adult now. So she's telling dad like, oh, let's just keep the secret that she's not 18 yet because it's better for her and her uh, mental state. So it, there were all of these components that yeah. and lies that she has to keep going with. And it's further isolating Gypsy from other people, from other uh, influence, as well as she would always have physical contact with her in person. So, you know, you know how powerful physical contact is between human beings. A hand on a shoulder can mean, it can mean something very good and endearing. It can mean something very sinister, like don't say something that you're supposed to say or that you're not supposed to say because I'm right here and I will know. Yeah. Or a squeeze on the wrist or of the hand when answering questions. Um, sort of those things we see in domestic violence types type of relationships. The, the one thing that they did do socially, like you mentioned, is that they would get some of these uh, Disney events paid for, uh, but they would, she would allow Gypsy to go to some of these like sci-fi conventions, uh, Comic-Con type uh, conventions, and really allowing something into her world that was semi-social, but it was still all about fantasy. And it, it was, it's a very interesting thing. You know, I don't know how much Dee Dee was into it or involved in it, but I think it's really interesting if we look at Gypsy's mindset and where she's at, which we'll talk about in a moment, a little bit more, you know, nothing is really real outside the walls of your home, especially when you're allowed to go to these events that are make-believe. Right. So, but I yeah, wonder so- if that was, I mean, I wonder if that was a tactic on mom's part. Is, I would think you so. Know, I'll, I'll let you live in the world of comic books and sci-fi and fantasy and Disney. Right. But, but it's I'm not keep, real. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What's real is our really hard life because of your your conditions. So they they moved to Missouri in March of 2008. And that's the home that's built for them by Habitat for Humanity after okay. Hurricane Katrina. So as Gypsy starts to get older becoming a adolescent, a teen, and then getting into adulthood, she starts questioning the lying and the manipulation and the role that she's been playing because she knows, she walks around the house, she knows her legs work at times, or she walks around the house at times, I should say, her legs always work, um, but her mom keeps her in the wheelchair. And that's the main lie that Gypsy is upholding too, is the presentation to other people and even around the house of like, okay, you need to stay wheelchair bound. But she starts questioning this. She starts desiring social interactions with friends and, of course, romantic relationships. I mean, you're not going to stop the human libido just because somebody is disabled or has a medical condition. And eventually in 2011, she ends up actually meeting a guy at a sci-fi convention. They exchange some information. She is able to get a cell phone at some point and she runs away to his home. She's 19. It only takes a few hours for her mom to find her and bring her back and ends up chaining her to the bed for two weeks after this. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. They slept in the same bed, of course. Yeah. So after that, as a as a teen does or somebody who is has some tight controls on them, she so she eventually starts rebelling a little bit more, starts an online and social media presence, which is its own world and form of fantasy and role playing, which eventually leads to dating sites and meeting her boyfriend and boyfriend they meet online but quickly are attracted and in constant communication with each other. So his name is Nick Godijohn. He has some developmental delays of his own, but he's functional enough to travel, to work at times, to be in other past romantic relationships. His mother later said that he was autistic. He says 
that he has, quote unquote, multiple personalities and that one of his personalities is like the dark side of him and that it's a vampire. So I don't know what's going on with this guy, but he pretty much convinces Gypsy of this and then very quickly introduces her to his kinks of BDSM and they start engaging in a master-slave relationship online once they actually do manage to meet up in person. So he lives in Wisconsin. He's far. They come up with this very adolescent plan where they're going to meet up at a movie theater and she's going to convince her mom to take her to see the light, to see the live action movie of Cinderella. And he's going to buy a ticket and just happen to be a guy at the movie theater. They're going to sort of be in the theater together maybe have a little exchange and sort of test the waters to see how Dee Dee reacts after they've already had this full-on online relationship. This does not go well. Basically, they're the only three people in the theater. Dee Dee's like, what's up with this weird guy that's coming to watch Cinderella by himself and sitting in our row? <laughs> and is totally like, this guy's a creep. Don't talk to him. Dee Dee, during the movie, ends up excusing herself to the bathroom this guy leaves too and she loses her virginity to him in the bathroom at the movie theater so which isn't weird at all that like there's (laughs) only three people in the theater and he leaves at the same time god yeah i know right maybe Didi was really into the movie yeah great Great parenting there. So because Didi had such a strong negative reaction to Nick, and of course, I'm sure fueled by their now new intimate connection, this is when they start coming up with the plan of Didi having to escape from her mom and they conspire to kill her. So what happens is that June 14th, 2015, Nick comes down from Wisconsin He goes to the house where Gypsy lets him in. She provides him with a knife and her mom is sleeping. And Gypsy goes into the bathroom to cover her ears and wait there until the murder has occurred. And Nick goes into the bedroom and stabs Dee Dee multiple times. They then leave. They flee to Wisconsin. They're staying in a couple motels. And then they eventually go and stay with his parents until their arrest. And the day after, they log on to Gypsy's Facebook page. And the first post says, that bitch is dead. And this kind of sparks everything because she is friends with some neighbors. And then it's written on her her Facebook post, I fucking slashed that fat pig and raped her sweet, innocent daughter. Her scream was so fucking loud, LOL. So it's like he's on there. Is he trying to throw them off? People think at first, oh my God, what's happening? Did somebody kidnap Gypsy? How would that be throwing off? Unless that I mean, somebody hacked not... into her Facebook oh, and, you okay. know, this, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying they had the best laid plan. <laughs> Clearly. Right. But friends and neighbors end up seeing these posts. They call the police. Cops go get a warrant, go into the house. Gypsy's not there. Dee Dee's dead. And they don't know what they have at first. Is, is Gypsy kidnapped by somebody who is now posting on her Facebook page? Um, but they do pretty quickly end up tracking the IP address to Nick's residence in Wisconsin and find out that's where the posts were coming from. Police go there and they're together and then they're arrested. So, you know, I, I know this is a, a much more intense case and intricate case than I just ran through. But And I know there are people out there that know way more ins and outs of it. But for purposes of today and our topic, you know, it's really quite interesting to see a real life high profile version of this that ended in a way with the victim feeling like she was at such a place where this was the choice that she made. And I think there's a lot impacting that choice. Yes. I don't think it's just, you know, bad decision-making, but like I was talking about, if if we look at what she has endured her whole life, she's being deceived too, right? I mean, she's slowly coming to terms of what's happening, 
but she really has to me a quite a limited ability for reality testing. What's real? What's not? Absolutely. I mean, she's been been living this alternate reality with not much of an ability to develop these skills. I mean, fantasy is so much a part of her life. It completely makes sense that she would have very concrete thinking influenced clearly by this guy as well, that this is the problem. This is how we end the problem without going too far into the legal consequences and decisions that were made. How is this different from someone sex trafficking a child? And then that child figuring out that they can act and defend themselves against the perpetrator. Sure. You know, sure. I, I think that all those cases need to look at, be looked at very carefully and specifically in each case. Well, and how deeply wounding it is to feel so betrayed by the one person who was supposed to take care of you. You know, that, that's the Horrific. narrative that you had going on. And then you realize, what? Like, I'm not sick. I don't need my head shaved every single day. So I have to wear this stupid aerial wig or whatever, you know, it's like, it's mortifying. I mean, it's, it's really awful. And the, the life that she had to realize she lost out on. And those aerial I, wigs are so hot. It's that vinyl. You hair. know, remember it's, when I, my kid was all into wigs and you I had know. To wear one? <laughs> I put one on, I put like, there was one that was like a Cindy Brady wig and it was, it was like wearing lava on your head. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you bought that alone justifies Didi's actions. Oh my god! (laughs) Oh, the wigs, but not Didi. Sorry, Gypsy Rose. Yeah, I know. know. Really, I mean, she's been taught to lie. She's been taught to manipulate by this modeling by her mother, and that's the way to get through life. I mean, it. I think people also have this like thought of like, well, I mean, how culpable is she to the murder? Is it another manipulation? Like, did she even manipulate this guy? How? I don't know. It gets very muddy. But as I said before, I I think that with the court giving some really good consideration to what happened, giving her a plea deal for second degree murder, which was a 10 year sentence, was the right thing to do in this situation. I think so as well. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't absolve her of responsibility. The awful way in which she was treated and her, if she truly thinks this was the only way to escape her mother. And she says now, she's like, I realize now I should have called my dad and just told him everything. And, you know, maybe he would have come and got me. And I completely get that she did not know how to do that at that time. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, did she even know her dad's phone number? Was she even aware of how interested he was in being in her life? I don't know, but she also admits I was relieved when it happened. When we left and went to the bus station, I was just excited to start my new life. You know, I think those are really honest statements. You know, somebody that is trying to get one over on the system probably wouldn't say something like that. That's that's a horrible, honest truth to say. I think it's very transparent and authentic, and it comes from a place that is born out of a very narrow view of life and understanding of life, sort of contextually to how she would look at her life and and understanding that sense of relief of like, this part is over. I don't have to be this lie that I don't really understand because I don't have all the facts, but at least that's sure. over. And even though I'm with this weirdo, it's he's treating me better than mom did. Right. I mean, there is some level of almost dissociating there of, okay, my old life is done. What's my new life? Right. Very concrete. Yes. So Nick actually got convicted of first degree murder. Um, He has life without parole. You know, the more I learn about Didi's background, which is not a lot, I really definitely think, you know, the Munchausen syndrome by proxy is there with maybe a little bit of malingering, but I don't think that's as strong. I really think it was in facilitation of the act that they were keeping up. I also, though, know that there are some psychopathic traits there, especially in consideration of did she kill her own mother? So when we start looking at that, it's not a Munchausen issue. That and the poisoning of the stepmother is really very cruel and very heinous. And So that's why I'm starting to get sort of these dark triad feels with her. Which doesn't, it's not exclusive to another comorbid diagnosis. All of those things can exist. And that's something we find out is like, it's all a matter of 
you've got a dark triad with an, a Venn diagram overlay of another issue. Right, right. So, you know, we found some other fascinating cases, which I think probably we could do as a follow-up episode down the line as more research comes out. We'll probably revisit this at some point. But one of the things we wanted to talk about is the intersection, of course, between this diagnosis and how it can be presented in media. And Shiloh, you just gave a great example of how this true crime case was beautifully done as a movie with uh, amazing actors, with Patricia Arquette, who just another award-winning performance, and she's not afraid to play really difficult, challenging, and challenging to look at characters. I mean, she dives all in. Right. I, I was surprised with The Act, which is the film, or it's actually a series, because usually with some of these true crime versions, there's like nobodies in them. And I was really surprised to see her, to see Chloe Sevigny playing the mom that's the neighbor across the street. Um, some of the other actors that are in there, it, I think it could have been done in much fewer episodes, right. um, but I know where they were coming from, which I, I was actually grateful for was my thought with this case was always, God, what could have been going on behind those walls in that house? And that's exactly. really the story they give you. And it's slow and it peels it back layer by layer. But at the same time, I think that's what we sort of needed filled in for us rather than just the weird, crazy tabloid nature of what the story felt like. Right, outside. because there's there's a different kind of trauma. Mom is perpetrating physical and medical trauma on her child, but she's also commandeering the emotional and intellectual development of this child, mm -hmm. which is traumatic in itself. And that can be very banal. It's not like a big explosive beating somebody up. It's right. constantly wearing away at the individual's self-esteem. You're not strong enough to do this. No, that's not good for you. Oh, you know, we can't do that. Oh, we have to do this. And that idea that those that they stretched it out into those episodes to kind of create that. I mean, I'm sure for some people it was boring, but I think that was a calculated and very successful way to present it. I think so too. But the first ever media-related depiction that I can remember seeing of Munchausen by proxy was in the movie The Sixth Sense. So good. So, so good. And if you recall, one of the ghosts that the boy sees is this creepy, sickly girl who is, like, in my memory, just constantly vomiting. <laughs> Poor thing. Um, but he ends up attending. She appears to him. She's clearly asking him for something. So he goes to her wake at her home, the family gathering at her home after her funeral. And the ghost girl basically leads him to her bedroom where she had hidden a camera and recorded her mother pouring floor cleaner into her soup and then feeding it to her. And it's so chilling because you see then the, the, the boy in the movie brings a videotape out to the heartbroken, grieving father. And the father pops it in the VCR. And then it starts playing. And everyone's just kind of looking around, looking at it, sitting like, around what are looking, we looking at, at it. Like, what is this? And then you realize it's this camera behind a bookshelf. She sees her mom or she hears her mom about to come in. She's she also, moves the stuff. She's got her own puppet show and she's doing like a little, that's how oh, she entertains herself is like right. filming the puppet show. And she yes. leaves the camera running as her mom comes in. Yes. And you see mom pouring the pine saw into the soup and mixing it. And then the mom is sitting there too. I mean, watching as this videotape is being played. Right. And talk about dissociation, like the, the actress playing that, that very small but significant role She's just completely dissociating in that yep. red dress. Also, that, that was a that was a the red stuff. The yeah. red stuff throughout the movie, but she just sort of goes blank. And mm -hmm. also the the other layer that they put in Sixth Sense is that Haley Joel Osment, the little boy's character, had basically saved her little sister. That's why the ghost was so That's right. Was doing it is because she had a little sister, and the little sister, now that she was dead, was starting to get sick because mom was poisoning her too. 
Oh, I forgot that part. So remember, yes, it's all yes, in, yes. The, in the movie. That's it was all right. unfinished business. But yeah. and then the look of just utter devastation on the father's face as he turns and looks at her like, you you know, you were killing our daughter. Oh, uh, I know. It was done so, so well, well done. So there's another. OK, so Sixth Sense, that was really I mean, that was a great movie and that was an elegant way to do it. There's one, I want everybody to watch this. It is on Netflix. It's a movie called Run. And I have to say, exclamation. Run, because it has an exclamation point. Starring one of my favorite actresses, Sarah Paulson. I think she's amazing. She's been in American Horror Story. She was in one of my favorite series from a gazillion years ago called American Gothic. It only lasted one season. And she played a ghost, which is really cool. But I have not seen this. It's so worth it. In fact, I have to be really careful because I don't want to give away spoilers, but it's very clear within about 20 minutes that mom has Munchausen by proxy and that she is using a medication. She's convinced the doctors that this is the only medication that works for her daughter's multiple issues, but the mom picked the medication because the side effect is incredible weakness in the legs. So that confines her to a wheelchair and it's, it's cheesy, but it's an American psychological thriller. It was directed by Anish Chiganti. It was written by Chiganti and Seb Ohanian. Uh, Kira Allen is the teenager. She's amazing. And there is, let me just tell you, like, it's kind of a slow burn and you're figuring out what's going on with mom and you're watching the daughter realize what's happening. And then, it's a thriller from then on because I won't tell anything else except that once the daughter figures it out, now she realizes that her mom is really dangerous, like really, really dangerous and will go to any length to preserve this charade. So you guys, it's worth your Netflix subscription to watch it. It's (laughs) so much fun. It's cheesy, but it's really fun. So and we have a paranormal it. one. We have a thriller. Right. And I have, how, how do I go an episode with not mentioning Ryan Murphy, <laughs> a Ryan Murphy show? Speaking of Sarah Paulson. I know. Well, he's really willing to do, yeah, he loves Sarah Paulson. He's got her in every show, but he's willing to do like really edgy stuff. And very edgy. This one is so great. I remember right before this was coming out, being at your apartment, I think we're going to record. And your husband was like, have you seen the trailer for politician? Let me show you. It's going to be amazing. It's so good. <laughs> um, but the politician, it came out the first season in 2019 on Netflix. It's a Netflix show uh, about these uber rich teens at a high school in California. It stars Ben Platt. He's the main character character, the politician. He's a high school kid in the first season. Gwyneth Paltrow is his mom. Um, just a great cast. Uh, Zoe Deutsch ends up playing Infinity Jackson, and her care- her caretaker is her grandmother, Jessica Lang. Jessica Lang, who can do anything. God, she's so good. Yeah, how, how he has made Jessica Lang and Sarah Paulson, his muses, just... Yeah. Amazing. So Infinity is basically chosen as the main character's running mate in the high school elections for student body president and vice president because she's this frail cancer patient. And he thinks he's just cunning. This is very like edgy and funny and witty. And he is the most cunning character that's like, I'm going to be president of the United States one day. Like that's his whole thing. And so by choosing this cancer patient who's wheelchair bound, he thinks it's just going to totally get him the sympathy vote, show that he, you know, his anti-discriminatory tendencies for people who are disabled. And it turns out that her grandmother has been completely lying to her about her cancer diagnoses And this is actually a case, I think, more of malingering at the risk of this poor child because she's getting handouts and money. It's basically how they get by. It's how she she lives. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's... doesn't fall neatly in the category for all the reasons we blab on and on about today. Um, But this show is so good. If you guys are not watching it, it has two seasons now. They're both fantastic. They're also visually, it's like watching a cartoon. It's like watching a cartoon about 
about entitled rich people who make really awful decisions and yet you still you care about them. I mean, it's it's very it's interesting to watch, but it's very hyped and and, and like melodramatically funny. It's very over the, the fashion's top. amazing. Yeah, it's the fashions are unreal. So good. Another one that is really good by one of my favorite authors, Gillian Flynn, uh, who wrote Gone Girl. And Shiloh, like I was telling you, I thought the Gone Girl movie was okay and it was fun, but the book was phenomenal. The book it was. took you on this journey of where you don't know what you're reading. Am I, is this person dead? Are they alive? Does this man actually have a sister or is he crazy? Cause nobody else has interacted with the sister. So the book does a whole thing that the movie can't do. Although right. the movie is disturbing and well done and well acted in its own way. But she wrote another book. Gillian Flynn wrote another book called Sharp Objects, and it was made into a series with Amy Adams and Patricia Clarkson and a bunch of other really great actors. But they really are the ones who steal the show. And it is about Amy Adams coming back to her hometown in a rural area, small town. She came from like the last sort of dying money family Mm. in the town, living in a big, creaky, over-the-top mansion. And because there's a series of murders and it looks like there's a serial killer in the town. And what you find out quickly is that Amy Adams is a self-harmer. She has um, developed uh, a coping mechanism for her dissociation by cutting herself, cutting words into her skin. So she's always covered up very much. So I'm not giving away any spoilers except that it's very clear very early on that Patricia Clarkson has Munchausen by proxy and went one of the things that you find out very quickly is Amy Adams had a sister that was only a couple of years in age difference who did die and mother basically killed her and was never, uh, no one ever found out. Sure. So in the exploration of this serial killer in the small town, all this stuff starts to bubble up to the surface. And I think Patricia Clarkson plays the character with, real interesting choices including her own her own illnesses like she's perfectly dressed and always has like a big cocktail in her hand and you know floating through this southern steamy mansion and anytime anybody you know tries to challenge her or anything she's like you know I have these health problems you know I have this (laughs) even to the point where she's got sort of trichotillomania where she's pulling out her eyelashes oh my goodness some really great stuff definitely worth watching and it's a good slow burn and Actually, I think in this case, the media presentation is actually better than the book was. Ooh, that's very unusual. Yeah. Everyone knows the book's always better, but I guess not in this case. Yeah. So look, what do we take away from all this? I mean, this is a, we've covered a lot on this today. Um, I think that as far as like looking at the difference between female and male perpetrators, if the dad has Munchausen syndrome or significant somatizing disorder, Doctors, health visitors, social workers, any mental health clinician, they all need to be vigilant for any unusual illness or event involving a child in that home. And they should look for the same thing in women, too. It's like there just needs to be a history. And I want to look now. I want to see if somebody is doing this. Are people educating hospitals in how to look for this? I don't know, but I I really want to, again, like dive into this. I, I keep telling myself, Shiloh, you can't be a specialist in everything. So stop thinking that you can. I think this podcast allows us to dip our toe in a little, you know, some areas we wouldn't normally. And this is one of those. I would love to see what the comorbidity is with all the other things we talked about today, the personality disorders, the psychopathic traits. Um, and I know there's people out there doing this work and that are doing the research. Um, I think it's just going to be up to me to really seek out maybe some other trainings and such where I can get that information. But I, again, feel like I just like scraped off a little bit of the surface that I want to know know. more about. It's the beauty of this field. It's the beauty. And we're, we're in a specialized area of the field in forensics and within forensics, there's all of these other areas, you know, and which is why it's so important, you know, if you're, if you are in a position where you need someone on the bench testifying in your defense or for some other thing, make sure the person is an expert in what they're supposed to be, a specific expert, not a generalist. 
Right. Don't call us. Yeah, don't call us. We'll direct <laughs> you to the right person, though. Yes, we, we can do that. All right. Well, we finally gave the people Munchausen by proxy. Yay. We may Yay. have to split it up, too. This is a long episode again. Uh, we'll see. Well, thank you guys for sticking with us for this long, and we'll see you next time on L.A. Not so. Confidential. Take Bye, care, folks. guys. Bye-bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.